Welcome to the Orion Podcast, hosted by Jessa and Laurel of A Stellar Co., a podcast that connects you with the knowledge and resources you need to drive a more conscious form of capitalism. Orion starts now. Hey, Jessa. I'd like to introduce our guest today. Yes. We have Dr. Tamsin Woolley Barker. Thank you so much for joining us. We have been looking forward to this for a while. No pressure. Me too. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, Jessa, how do we know her? How are we connected to Tamsin? So we met Dr. Tamsin through Nancy Mancia. Um, who was with ISOS group and Nancy, we were just talking about this before, we're like, well, how do we meet Nancy? And we were introduced to Nancy and her partner, Brian, through um, Isabel Wynn, who's been a huge connector for us. And so just our constellations uh, have brought us to you today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. Um, I, I feel like I could read off your biography um, but but anybody can read off your biography. So I'll, I'll prompt it by saying I was really excited when Jessa sent me your info on Team Innovation Group. And then I started to look you up and then I, it kept going and going. And like you were involved in so many things. And then I got your book. And this to me, like if I were to flip through it, it is highlighted. It's marked up. There's notes in this. <laughs> like, I have studied it. I'm a huge fan girl. Um, I'm a huge fan girl. And one of my favorite facts about you that everyone needs to know is that you're an obesian. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so aside from living in Ocean Beach and being a, you know, a best-selling author of this book, Teaming, tell us about your story of becoming an entrepreneur and founding Team Innovation Group. Okay, well, it is an interesting history because I started out as a biologist. I am a biologist. So my PhD is in um, evolutionary biology and uh, anthropology, but physical anthropology. So I'm really a geneticist. And um, I studied uh, social evolution in the field. So I was a primatologist. I lived um, along the Awash River where they found Lucy. Uh, right in that area. Yeah, it was great. Um, But I studied the baboons there. And what's amazing is that, you know, that's the cradle of humanity, right? So you can study uh, these other creatures that were around at the same time in the same habitat and the way their speciation patterns and social evolution has happened. And so it helps you understand human evolution. And we were using that uh, to model um, what you'd expect to see if Neanderthals were breeding with uh, modern humans. And so, because at the time they said no, but we did the models and then we knew what to look for and then we found it. So So. my model was actually used, you know, for for that. So that was really cool. But then out of that, um, so I was really involved in like wildlife genetics, social evolution, um, all that kind of stuff. But then um, I ended up, you know, I was raising my family. I ended up, um, we had a photo studio and uh, so I was an entrepreneur raising my family. Um, and, you know, fast forward, and then I ended up in sustainability and uh, executive leadership training for scientists. Um, I worked as a uh, genetic engineer, if you can believe that. <laughs> yeah, my boss was a VP at Monsanto. <laughs> wow. 
it's crazy. Um, but uh, uh, so I saw, I saw the dysfunction of the workplace and the way the silos were um, preventing innovation. And that's why they brought me in because they wanted something really out of the box and they just didn't have it. So um, that's how I, I got into that. I saw the business world. I did the entrepreneurial thing and the sustainability thing. And then I found biomimicry. Um, yeah. which I'm guessing your audience is pretty familiar with it, but innovation inspired by nature. Okay. I don't I'll, think so. I think you need to like, d- let's dive into what biomimicry is. All right, let's do it. Biomimicry. <laughs> okay. So here I am. It was uh, 2008. I'm driving down the freeway, middle of recession. Everything's falling apart. Like, I, I, what am I going to do? Like, what am I going to do with my life? Right. Um, Cause nothing, none of the dots are connecting properly. Um, and, and the radio comes on NPR and it's Janine Benyus who wrote Biomimicry. And she's talking about innovation inspired by nature and like how a gecko can walk up a wall. And so you can look at the microscopic level and see that these uh, tiny little hairs are actually providing a molecular force that allows them to walk up the wall. And then they use that to uh, reverse engineer like a tape that works the same way. So it's innovations that we can um, see how nature has evolved these things and emulated. And they're more sustainable. They're, you know, they follow life's principles. So I just, I pulled over on the side of the road and I was like, that's what I'm doing in my life. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, a cop pulled up behind me on the freeway. Are you all right, ma'am? <laughs> Never been better. <laughs> I've had an epiphany. I'm enlightened. Yeah, that's what I said. I had an epiphany. <laughs> So biomimicry stopped you in traffic and changed the, uh, the path of your life forever. And what, so is biomimicry consulting where you go into a business and you take the principles of healthy living systems or nature and you apply it to the, the business system or the institution itself so that it's higher functioning um, like walk us through why a business would want to take advice from nature. Right. Well, so let me back up a little bit. So I did a lot of biomimicry consulting and I was working with Fortune 500, 100 companies um, and they were doing amazing things. You know, uh, Estee Lauder, uh, um, I worked with Google, all these different companies, um, but a lot of them were product oriented. Right. And so the engineers and designers would get super excited about it like mind blown, right? We have a transformative technology here. And then they would, we'd come back six months later, they'd be discouraged because the organization itself was not built to adapt to change. So then I started going, ah, well, I have studied social evolution in baboons. I know, you know, what kinds of social structures um, cause rapid innovation, rapid change. So then I started thinking, well, how would we um, apply biomimicry to the structures in the organizations and the processes and systems? So that's what I've been doing since then. Um, And uh, companies really need it because, I mean, obviously right now we're all, you know, there's just so much complexity and interdependence that it's very volatile and you can't predict it. And so, you know, sustainability, you can't get there um, without emulating those those principles. I mean, we're living things, we're living creatures, and every living thing is a survivor, right? It's lived for 3.8 billion years, you know, um, trying different things, what works. So, you know, 
99.99% of all species are gone. So we just got the good stuff left and we're in it. So we're the good stuff. We're the good stuff too. We're nature, right? So it's looking at those deep principles of what evolves over and over again. What are those deep patterns that work? Um, and trying to align our systems and structures and processes with that. Mm-hmm. And when, when we were reading Teeming, how or- super organisms work to build infinite wealth in a finite world, there's many things that popped up for me just by reading the cover. Firstly, the word superorganism. So I want to know what the definition of that is for our readers. And the idea of building infinite wealth makes me feel really good. I have a reaction to the infinitesimal nature of wealth. Many people think, oh, it's finite. It, it, it comes to me and I hoard it and then I spend it on my own little things. And as stakeholder capitalists, Jess and I are stakeholder capitalists, we don't believe in that. We believe that, you know, money is just a transfer of energy and we need to keep the flow going and adding value to each one of the stakeholders in our business is how you keep that going and build wealth. And then finally, the other word, the the finite world, we are infinite beings, in my opinion, in on earth, which is a finite world. So firstly, what is a super organism? And then we'll walk through the rest of it. Okay. So <laughs> most of us are one being, right? Um, you know, and we have a purpose. Well, actually, humans aren't a good example because we're super organisms. But like a chimpanzee is out for itself. It has its body and all that. But then if you were to really take that um, to uh, what would the ultimate in agility be, then you get to like an octopus where it's like, doing all that stuff. Um, but the way that they're doing that is they're not sending information to the brain. Sorry, that's my dog. She's an operatic. She's got to get that out and then she'll stop. Um, Welcome to the light. laughing because it woke my dog up. My dog looks over and she's walking over like, what's going on over there? She's upset that she can't come in. <laughs> um, right. So the octopus, it, it has the same number of neurons as a baboon, if you can believe that. But it's not in its brain. It's in skin. So it's distributed and it's sensing and responding, um, you know, in a distributed way. But it's all clones. All those cells in it are still octopus. So the superorganism takes that one step further where you have like an ant colony where you've got all this distributed intelligence. Each is an individual genetically distinct. And it's really the colony as a whole. That is the organism. Mm. There's one queen is the reproductive. Um, there's some males, just a handful um, that are reproductives. And when they're, when they've been um, used properly, they toss them in the garbage actually. <laughs> If there's any leftover males, I just eat them or toss them out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. No, so the definition of a superorganism is um, organisms that come together uh, into a colony and they can't survive without each other. So they can survive for a little while, but not very long. Um, So they, they can't perform the functions they need to without each other. You know, it takes a village. And so human beings, our species, we are super organisms. And because we're here, 
it is necessarily true that we've evolved to be here and we are the best that that we are right now, right? <laughs> you would think, but we're we're a bit odd, you know. We have, we have our oddities, um, but uh, yeah. We have, we have our oddities and I really like a a part in a book where you're describing the superorganism and you start with ants as you just have shown us that the ants are in a colony and they're better together to put it, you know, simply. Mm -hmm. And what is the difference between humans and apes? If we're 98% genetically similar, what is that 2% and how does that make us what we are? Right. So, um, you know, chimpanzees, 99.9% or 98% um, similar to us. And yet, you know, you can see that difference is really extreme, but what is it? And what it is, is that we have crossed some kind of threshold to a superorganism um, state where we, you know, we're all moping around thinking we're um, less than perfect. And it's true because we're not meant to be alone. We're meant to depend on each other. Um, so that's really the difference. And that 2%, I mean, who knows what's, what it is, but it, what we see is that we have, um, incredible ability to collaborate and fairness and sharing and reciprocity. And we have these ethics around that. Um, and that's how we accomplish the same things the ants do. Um, and it's really interesting if you look at bonobos are the other ape that we're closely related to, um, equally related. But they, you know, where the chimps have this dominant male that keeps everyone in line, the bonobos, any two females will gang up to prevent that. So it's very equal, very flat. Um, and But we have both in our abilities. We can go either way. But you could kind of see how that social structure could have turned into the superorganism structure. I recommend our listeners check out uh, the bonobo revolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we my women's leadership movement, collective sisterhood. Um, yes. Yes. With that idea that, you know, if a, if a male or someone comes in to disrupt the system or gang up or bully on somebody else, the bonobos come together and they don't let that happen. And they bring everything back into sort of a balanced equilibrium state. To me, that seems like a really peaceful, awesome place to live in where you're kind of, you're working together, collaborating and creating that equity and that fairness. And I can see how I can see how the metaphor works. Like so, like an ant-like ape, human beings are ant-like apes, and here we are in um, traditional business structures with the hierarchy. Was that Roxy? <laughs> with the hierarchy of, of the corporation itself, um, and let walk us through how that hierarchy. Um, fails at a certain point it's kind of like your dinosaur story walk us through through why that's not working for us as super organisms well it's interesting okay um there's a lot of pieces to that but um it it is what it does is it um is effectively a filter so you have all these diverse signals going on um and the hierarchy removes the noise which sounds like a good thing, right? You get a clear, strong signal, just do this, but it's oversimplified. So you've removed all the noise that some of that is signal of what's coming, what's about to happen. And also you've always got diversity in the landscape. It's different here than it is there, right? So that hierarchy is removing the signal, stripping it out. So you are always getting hit with things. So it's very reactive state. Um, The person at the top 
how are they going to know everything, you know, in a, in a complex world, there's no way. And they don't have eyes and ears on the ground. So they're not able to even perceive all that stuff. Um, so the whole structure is, um, it's not very stable. And, you know, I've been studying a lot about uh, recently the rise and fall of civilizations in humans. And it's what happens is, you know, we start at this uh, band level, which is very stable. These roving bands like nomadic indigenous peoples, um, like some of the societies lasted 9,000 years. But then what happened is we have this cognitive ability. We can only really keep track of 150 people. So as it increased and as you started getting settlements, um, you start getting these hierarchies and, uh, and, and that's very unstable. And so those kinds of civilizations, they, they don't last more than 2000 years. So it all, we can do it all, but in terms of sustainability, it's that, that um, flat flow state is what we're trying to get to where you have minimal, minimal hierarchy. I was just reading about the 150 people yesterday. I had mm -hmm. I'd never heard of that, or if I did, I forgot. And I started digging into it, and it was talking about you know the advent of social media, and now we have to worry what everyone thinks of us or pleasing all these people as opposed to 150 people. And so, and just like the stress it takes on individuals and and how we perceive ourselves in the context of the world. So I'm, I want to read a lot more about that because I think it's really yeah, interesting. Yeah, that seems to be the main selection pressure on our big brains is just keeping track of the politics. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. then as you, I'm thinking too, as you're talking about all this, you know, I'm not a technical person. And when you're talking about the super organisms and it takes a village, I mean, we're in a global pandemic and it's, I mean, it, I don't want to skirt around that as we talk about this because it seems so relevant to what we're going through now in the world and our societies and you read and learn about the places that have low COVID rates and what they're doing. And they are, they're the village or a community and they have that sense of community of like protecting their fellow community. It's not just about the individual, but it's about the people around them as well. And so it's, um, I look forward to someday reading about what people write about the time we're in right now and like the different, I guess, like yeah. the, the sociology behind it. Well, it's really interesting because you see, you know, if you do look at the models and all that, the collaborative groups do better. Um, so what happens over time is those groups, even though they're susceptible to cheaters, very susceptible, like if you get narcissistic president or something, say, which could happen, um, you, you get a, 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 a this oscillating thing of, of narcissism basically is the enemy of sustainability, if I could sum it up that easily, but it's, so those collaborative societies, if they can keep their commons bounded and protected, um, they will do much better and they spread. Whereas those less collaborative ones um, decline. But you have to keep the cheaters out. Yeah, you have to keep the cheaters out. And vote November. <laughs> yeah, vote. Everybody vote. I, one of my favorite um, threads in your book is about obviously ants and termites um, and how long they've lived and evolved and what they do so well. And then when you start talking about fungi is where my mind explodes. Right. And 
I've known a lot about fungi and I've always been really drawn and attracted to it. And I have all these books at home about it that I've never opened. And now I'm like, okay, I need the, the universe is telling me to go back and read all these things. Tell our audience about, about the time scale of how long ants and termites have been around and how, and the importance of fungi and how we can incorporate the fungi sustainability into businesses, kind of like reusing waste, basically. Right. So 80% of the insect biomass in the Amazon basin is superorganism species, ants and termites. Um, So they're extremely successful, right? So the ants have been doing that for about 70 million years, living in these superorganisms. Termites have been doing it about 250 million years, so a quarter billion years. But the fungus... Uh, what we know is a billion, but we've found fossils that are 2.5 billion with mycelia, which is how they connect. And so with these guys, what they're doing is they're all genetically distinct, but they're driven to connect. And um, Paul Stamets, who probably wrote one of those books that you haven't opened, is um, he told me that they he has to keep them in the Petri dishes. They're like climbing out of it to get each other. They've just they love each other so much, <laughs> but they make, they connect. And so they share their cell walls, but they keep their DNA distinct. So they stay as individuals, but they're sharing the cell walls and they're shuttling um, little nutrients and specks of water and they shuttle it throughout their system. And they're actually feeding 95% of the plants on earth, which is crazy. And they, preferentially shuttle nutrients to certain plants over others. We have no idea why they're farming these guys or that guy. Who knows? But they do, uh, they, they, they're up to something. Um, but the, the, it's, it becomes like a subterranean brain where they, they're very instantly know what's going on. Um, and they also, not only are they serving as this kind of grid of um, water and fertilizer, like an irrigation system, but they're also providing like a telephone system for the plant. So if an insect bites a leaf on this tree, it produces secondary compounds and a signal that the fungus take to the other trees and tell them there's insects. And then they start making defenses. Um, So with the the even crazier thing is, so, you know, uh, here's 2.5 billion years ago, let's say, let's call it 1 billion to be on the safe side. They're, they are all aquatic, right? But there's early plants are, you know, along the fringes of the water, but they just have these teeny little roots. They can't really go much. They can't really do much. They're very limited to the water. The fungus partnered with them and provided the, this real root system um, that allowed plants to move on to land. So thank a fungus. Oh my gosh. I just feel like my brain explodes when I hear about the level of collaboration and communication of the fungus and how they've survived billion, probably with an S, billions mm-hmm. of years on this earth through symbiotic relationships, listening. I mean, for lack of a better word, I don't know how to say it better, but like listening to their part, listening to their friends and then partnering with other species so that they can take the opportunity to continue on. That's right. They're unlocking new potential space. And then by doing that partnership, 
they enabled the plants to move onto land, which opened up all the ecosystems that we have. Um, so each, you know, that that symbiosis opened up all the opportunity space, which is like business. You know, that's really what we're trying to achieve is when these like guilds of different um, when when you the way I think of it is potential. You know, if you can whatever your problem is, if you can think about who else has that problem. Uh, even if you seem to be in opposition, the probably the reason you're in opposition is because you've got a common resource. Um, so you actually have something in common. So if you can boost that uh, that potential space out, suddenly you've opened this whole new realm of opportunity space, just like all these creatures do. I, that's why I'm so strong to the story that you're telling us and the book that we're reading, because that is our business as Stellar Co. We just see the opportunity and see the partnerships there. Even if it's a competitor, somebody doing very similar things that we're doing, we know that we have an added value and together we're going to do better. And one of the tenets of stakeholder capitalism is that, I mean, a competitor is a stakeholder in your business, bring them to the table, create value for each other, and like, let's evolve, right? Let's Are you saying we're fun guys? Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I had to. It. I had to. Oh, which brings me to my next fun fact. <laughs> Jessa does um, improv, and Dr. Tamsin, you do stand up. I I have done it. <laughs> I just, I That's do amazing. It. Where? I did the uh, the comedy club uh, in, uh, in La Jolla. No, in, um, is that the name of it? Claremont? Uh, yeah, in Claremont. Comedy Palace, I think. That's oh, awesome. Yeah. Oh my yeah. gosh, you'll have to do a set for us sometime. Oh my God. Yeah. I did uh, 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 dating tips from Jane Goodall. <laughs> do you have any bits you want to uh, share? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Two drink minimum. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Two drink minimum. <laughs> <laughs> <And counter charge. laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Well, that would be cool. Yeah. I'm yeah, go ahead. Sorry, I was just thinking, you know, as we we're talking about, like, this is, like, I mean, this is really mind-blowing. And to hear, like you said, like, conservatively one billion years and that they have, like, the individual, like, the like the individual DNA, but they're just like striving to connect. And because like when you, I mean, obviously exactly what you're doing and there's such, everyone says like we're starved for connection, like where we're at in today's society, because we become so behind the screen and on social media. And then you add the pandemic on top of that, where it makes it even more difficult to connect. Um, and so, you know, as we're talking about all this, the science, like how, I guess a few questions I have is, how do you take these principles and apply it to business? And I know that's a very probably complex <laughs> and long answer because it's like your career. I wrote a long book about it. <laughs> yeah. But um, yes. cliff notes for people like me. Mm -hmm. And then, um, well, and I guess like kind of at a basic level, like something that someone listening to this could take away and maybe apply to where they're at or like an idea. And then the other part of it too, I was wondering is how, how receptive are people to this idea? And I ask that because when I, you know, I, you were coming on our podcast and I was telling my friends and I said, yeah, basically she, you know, people are treated like machines at work and it's like, how do you apply, but we're living beings. So how do you apply that to the workplace? Yeah. And it's just like this light bulb moment. We're like, it's so 
obvious, but not at all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. And, and really that, um, I mean, that's what's become the, the main point of my work is if we can get people to understand living systems, living systems thinking, then we can get to living systems design. And then, you know, then we can, we can do the things that we, that we want to do. So um, it's, that's been my process of like getting people to realize like we're animals, our societies, our animal societies, they follow principles and patterns that we see that you can see outside your door anywhere. Um, and these are fractal patterns that happen at every scale. So, and then, so when you, when you really look at that, you start to realize that what sustainability really is, is maintaining that dynamic equilibrium. So it's not, uh, we've almost defined sustainability in terms of our machine mind, you know, of like, how can we keep extracting in this way? Um, but really, you know, it is, um, it's, it's, it's this, this dynamic flow, which is really for protocols, for simple protocols. It's diversity, autonomy, connection and exchange and adaptability. Um, if you have those four things, you can adapt to anything coming at you. Um, but we systematically stop that at every level in our companies. Yes. So we often have these discussions about sustainability in the business world. Like our, our biggest, I need to stop saying the word like, but like <laughs> we tell people that you have to define sustainability for yourself because it means different things to different people. Yeah. And, and for me, it means sustainability is being long lasting and resilient to change. It doesn't necessarily mean that you evolve or you elevate it, it. To me, it's like you're long lasting and resilient to change. And maybe that's because my machine mind is coming up with that. But then I think of the idea of regenerative value and how does a business become regenerative? And in your book, Teeming, you mentioned that there are, there are five components for super organisms to compound their value or add value over time, which in my mind is what regeneration is. It's just adding value throughout. The first is you cultivate collective intelligence. I'm a big fan of that idea. The second one is nurture swarm creativity. Ooh. The third is rely on distributed leadership. I love that. I'm a big fan of like getting it all out there. Uh, depend on reciprocity and sharing. And finally, compound regenerative value. So of those five things, each one resonates strongly with me, but it's the idea of compounding regenerative value that to me is how we evolve and elevate our consciousness. Can you explain or summarize like the cliff notes, like Jessica said, the, the five, these five principles and how I can just immediately practically apply them in my business and at home. Right. Okay. So well, collective intelligence, you know, that's like that idea I was telling you about the, the ants. Each one is an individual with their own brain, their own eyes, ears, whatever ants do. Um, and so that collective intelligence of all of it together is much uh, wiser you know, the, the wisdom of the crowd. Um, and so, you know, it's, uh, uh, can you, can you gather all those scraps of information and integrate them? And of course, you know, we, we know we're diverse, but it's the inclusion and the authenticity, you know, we go to work and we're suppressed. We come with our professional face. 
Um, and we, uh, uh, what you were saying about, um, you think of sustainability as resilience to change inherent in that is some kind of bouncing back to some ideal state, which there isn't one, right. You know, and it's always changing. It has, you have to evolve to keep doing it. Um, but that's hard for us to get our minds around. Um, okay. So the collective intelligence is all those little bits and how do you integrate them? Uh, swarm creativity is really a similar thing, but it's the innovation. Like, how do you um, keep coming up with new things and for to a purpose? You know, and and all every time you get into, you gotta have shared purpose. Um, and I think that's what's really missing for us a lot uh, in our companies is that we're just doing what we're told, but we we don't really um, have a shared purpose. And that fight feeds into all of the turnover. Um, all of that. So, um, what are the kinds of patterns that and processes you can put in place to increase swarm creativity and collective intelligence? It's really getting people to show up as their authentic selves, um, and to give them space to do that, listen to them. Um, and that's where the distributed leadership comes in because to do that, you really need leaders that are suppressing dominance for lack of a better term and facilitating inclusion um, and diversity, authenticity. Um, and uh, so like in ants and honeybees too, they, they work in these groups of three. I mean, I don't know how sticky this is, but um, these little teams. And so one of them is a leader where they're very social and they're communicating with other teams and they're climbing up blades of grass to see what's going on. And the other two get to work. And so the leader moves them to wherever they should go, but they're especially, they're a specialized group, like a team, like we have. Um, and so that's that distributed leadership is that 30% of them are leaders. Um, and then, you know, in, in uh, uh, chimps and bonobos, leadership is super important, right? Um, but for us, we've taken it to this other level of where it's really a super organism. So the purpose of a leader becomes suppression so that everyone can be um, included, so that you can get the benefits of the collective intelligence and the swarm creativity. Because, you know, you can't do it with a dominance hierarchy. Um, and then the reciprocity and sharing are those methods that we use to maintain that flatness, to keep each other, uh, allowing for each other's freedom. Because um, that's if, if you don't have the distributed leadership, then you don't have the autonomy. And if you don't have that, you don't have the adaptability and you don't have the resilience. So um, it's very unique to superorganisms, but you can see it in ants and termites. And then the regenerative value is if they do these things, it starts to uh, really increase in value. And you see like the, I was in Botswana a couple years ago and there's these like 30 foot termite mounds there and what they're doing is they they go out at night and they collect all these little scraps of grass that nobody else can make value out of. Like they're worthless. They bring them back down into the um, nest and they feed them to these fungal gardens that they have inside. So they're actually farming, you know, working symbiotically with these um, fungi to digest this undigestible cellulose. And then that turns into um, these little fruits that they feed to the colony. 
but in the process, it makes the ground more um, richer and then it attracts herbivores because more grass. They attract carnivores. Then you get carcasses into the soil and that's enriching the soil and the whole area gets richer and richer and richer. So it's a regenerative hotspot. And that's what we're trying to do, right? Like all of us working independently, bringing these scraps, creating value out of nothing that circles and regenerates the whole landscape. And so that's infinite, and that's wealth. infinite wealth. I mean, what are the things, so these superorganisms, what they're doing, instead of making their living on finite things, they do it on infinite things, which is like these teeny specks of, let's say, pollen for a honeybee or um, ants are collecting little seeds and things like that. The termites are getting these little dead grass garbage, you know, and the, uh, even the fungi um, mycelial networks are collecting teeny scraps of nutrients and water and collecting them for the trees, turning them into value. So that's really the function of a superorganism in a weird way. I love, I love that. That's what are, so what are some more infinite things? One of your principles is, you know, superorganisms create regenerative value using infinite things. What are some more examples of those? Well, a really good one is trust and transparency. We can always build more trust and better relationships. And so that is an infinite, um, you know, wealth that we can, we can put that to work. That trust enables us to produce more value um, and regenerate. And that's really kind of unique to superorganisms. Other organisms don't have that uh, in the same way. I have a question when you were talking about um, leadership, like a goal of leadership is to suppress mm. dominance. You know, I think my experience is that stereotypically dominance in the workplace is valued. And those are the people who they talk louder than other people. They assert themselves more. And so what are the benefits of that suppression? And mm -hmm. so and like, how can, and I'm trying to think about this is like, because dominance I think is mistaken for leadership. Mm, yes. And so the other people are seen as weaker when really they're just not probably being cultivated or have oops or, or have like space to do that or feel like they have space to do that. And so yeah. I, I guess what are the ramifications of letting dominance flourish? Right. I mean, it, it looks very energetic and clarification. Like it's the clarity and strength of a vision. Wow. It's so, makes you feel so good. Um, but really what it's doing is cutting through all that collective intelligence and swarm creativity. So you get more of the same thing. It really prevents adapting to change. Um, but if you look at the, like in foraging societies, they, their leaders, like, you know, how you, the stereotypical um, cartoon of the European explorer coming over, take me to your leader. And, you know, the, the tribes were like, uh, yeah, talk to this guy. And they would take him to the village idiot or someone because it was really bad manners. Um, you know, the, the more of a leader you are, the less you say it. And so humility is the primary trait of a leader. Um, and so it, you can't say I'm going to be the leader because that, that just disqualifies you. So they had their, their leadership, um, paradigm was very different than ours, but it was really, it's designed to prevent dominance so that you maintain the diversity, the autonomy, connection exchange and adaptability. So it's actually maintaining those four protocols of sustainability. 
um, which is totally different than our concept of leadership today. Um, and it's really hard to see because, you know, like if you look in their records, um, the Europeans were like, they don't have leaders. They don't have that. And, but they did, but they, they didn't want to um, admit it. <laughs> yeah. How does adding, how does compounding regenerative value differ from the idea of a circular economy for mm. business? Because mm. often in my, in my early journey of regenerative business, I was just thinking it's closing the loop on everything and eliminating waste. And I read your book and I shifted just a hair. So walk me through what you think is the difference between regenerative compounding regenerative value and a circular economy. Right. Well, I mean, there in, in nature, any waste is an opportunity. So there really is no such thing as waste. Um, it's, and it may, it may take a while for something to figure out how to use it. You know, like the cedar forests, nothing could eat wood. And so that's where all our fossil fuels came from. You know, it wasn't until bacteria started digesting cellulose that, you know, we could, that, that there was that circular economy. Um, otherwise you get a buildup of something which turns into a resource, which we have tapped, um, you know, so, um, but that I, the regenerative value that I talk about in teaming is on one level um, within our species. So it's really what comes out of our collaboration as a superorganism. But then if you, you know, living systems are always nested. Um, so if you go to another, uh, another level, you start coming up with this symbiosis, you know, where like the ants and like the leafcutter ants are working with the fungi um, or corals are working with algae or lichen is a fungus and a, a plant working together. And that's where you unlock that regenerative value. I think that's where you're finding waste that's accumulated and turning it into value that didn't exist before. Um, so that's kind of how I think of the circular economy is really nutrient flows, you know, and some is lost. That's how that is. And some is accumulates and then something um, will find a way to tap it. So to me, that's really exciting because I don't think of carbon as a problem. I think of carbon as an opportunity because that's the juice. That's what life builds with. So it's like, can we just get it out of the air and back into the biosphere? And then that can be a real game changer. I mean, you know, we could fast forward 5 billion years and think, wow, humans did that. That's cool. <laughs> That's what I really I'm liked. Fungus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we became mycelia. Yeah. I, I really liked the idea of carbon as an opportunity, not a problem. And I I think oftentimes people look at our government, especially here in California, they look at our government with all of our strong climate change policies. And there's, you know, some camps of individuals that feel very suppressed for lack of a better word or told to do something that they want to do they don't want to do and it's very costly to meet these like zero carbon standards and then there's another camp that's like i don't really care if there's these regulatory policies around carbon because that carbon is a resource that i can use for something else and i can make money off of it right. and so i i think if people are feeling 
um, anxious or controlled or overruled by these environmental policies and regulations, maybe they can take a step back and think about it from your perspective as this isn't, um, you know, hippie weirdos doing weird things. This is business opportunity. Well, Jump on the bandwagon. Let's use this as a resource and st- instead of just saying, oh, it's so super wasteful to the economy. It's super wasteful to me as a human or whatever. Nothing is waste wasted. No. Yeah. I mean, it, it, to my mind, any problem is I love that because that's where the juice is. That's where the potential is. So to my mind, you know, of course, that things are not structured right for us to take advantage of these opportunities very well. So it does take creativity, but you can see that the value is there if you could do it right. So what I would suggest is, you know, I, I started with the biomimicry and then the teaming is really the organizational patterns. But then I have been working a lot more with Regenesis and the regenerative design frameworks. Um, and that's where I see, you know, you find a problem and you step back and say, who else has got this problem, even if we're opposed to each other over it? And you you say, what is the a larger opportunity there that we could do together that we couldn't do alone? And back to Jess's earlier question, are you meeting resistance to this idea or is it or is it catching on? Oh my god, no. I astonishingly when I wrote that book, I was like, oh, this is some weird stuff. Nobody's gonna want this. Um <laughs> you nut job. But um no, I get no pushback. And surprisingly, um the the it's been really amazing. You know, like I mean, I'm working with um Cisco has been doing some work reorganizing, um, and they Across the board, people love it. And I think part of the reason is because it steps away from the morality of like what's good and bad, what we should do. It's not that. It's it's what works, what has worked, what is working. Um, and getting to this away from this monolithic machine mind of if this, then that. Um, and doing more small things that are like the ants are using these small algorithms you know, if I hit another and I turn, simple things like that, that build to these emergent responses. Um, and so I think what I've seen in a lot of companies is they want to apply these kind of algorithms. Um, and they see that as something that works with their big data um, and their and when the patterns that they have. Um, but it, it puts it in a context that's evolutionary and scientific um, and not uh, a value judgment. What are some other cool projects you're working on? You mentioned Cisco. You worked with Estee Lauder, Google. What are some other um, folks or groups or projects that you want to highlight that are exciting? Well, I got a lot of stuff going on right now. Um, I'm writing a new book, The Teaming Transformation. So teaming was kind of the philosophical underpinnings. Um, But this one's going to be very cut and dried, very much like I'm not a biologist. What do I do? Um, you know, and, and I, I, we also have, we're launching this team lab professional membership to go with that, where we're going to, it's going to be a a learning community, um, where we're helping people, um, acquire this living systems thinking so that they can design for living systems. Uh, so that's been exciting. I have a whole list of stuff. Um, Oh, I feel like your, your book should be dedicated to Jessa because she's not a biologist and just <laughs> wants to get into the practical point. Well, that's if there's been any pushback, it's been there of 
people like, this is so cool. I know this is the answer, but I don't, I don't understand the biology enough or I'm a little intimidated. A lot of people are intimidated. You know, they had bad experiences in high school or, you know, I mean, the crazy thing is how do we study living things? So we kill them and cut them open. <laughs> you know, I mean, so all these kids are like, I had to cut up a frog. I'm out. Um, so I don't know. I think we could do a lot better with that. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So then we also have, this is exciting. We're doing these um, living systems thinking and design immersions, um, which we are going to be doing in Anza Borrego. Uh, yeah. Come on down, man. We're going to do oh, we're joining January and February, baby. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So that's going to be really exciting. So if, if, you have listeners that are interested in that, they can go to teaminnovationgroup.com. And um, we have all our uh, PDFs there, like all kinds of infographic series. We have our team membership is on there. Um, and you can just, you'll just stay informed on what, what's going on. You'll get our newsletters and stuff. Um, the other big project is I'm the Dean of the Geoversity School of Biocultural Leadership. Um, which is crazy. I, uh, it is a 12,000 acre um, old growth cloud forest in Panama at the narrowest point of the Americas. So you can actually uh, walk across 35 miles. So what we do is we ride up and we walk over and then we river raft down. Um, so it's uh, you go from the Pacific to the Atlantic. It's pretty cool. But we, we work with so the... Yeah, it's cool. And so we work with the indigenous tribes there, but we we have all kinds of fascinating, cool people. And the, it's uh, Regenesis people are faculty. Uh, my partner's from Regenesis. So we, we have that that um, background. But uh, yeah, it's great. So we, we just started the geo school. So that's a gap, like a gap year program um, for 18 to 25 year olds. Um, but there's going to be smaller immersions for business people. And we'll also be doing them in Anza Brega. That's what I was, I was wondering is for all of these programs, like who, who should be looking into it or who do you recommend look into it? Well, that one's really, um, if you have uh, kids home from college that are driving you insane, like I have, um, you just send them to Geoversity. No, but it's a, uh, uh, um, so yeah, so eight, that 18 to 25 group there. But if you have um, any kind of group that needs a venue in an amazing place, this is for you. Um, and then so we're- that is for like management teams can come in and we're do- doing, We're doing salons for policymakers, um, healthcare, what, uh, they're gonna be targeted to topics. Um, but then we also have the executive leadership trainings, um, living systems leadership, and um, and then a lot of other things. We've got G- a really great GIS um, team. So we're actually we're designing this virtual Gaia, which is we're modeling the Earth so that we can see it breathe like an organism. Yeah, yeah. And then anybody can feed their data into it, uh, and hopefully everybody will. And so then you'll see regenerative hotspots and you'll say, oh, what are they, what are these ants doing over here? These people ants. And, it, <laughs> and then you can borrow, but it, it becomes a system because right now everything is managed uh, in this uh, machine-like matrix. 
it, yeah. this, I know one of your, one of the co-founders of Geoversity is Vern Harnish. Yeah. And so I'm going to slide back, pull out his book for a second. But you have it. Well, the scaling up one. Yeah. Um, and for those of you that know him, he's best known for his uh, Rockefeller Habits and Scaling Up books. He's highly regarded. He also founded the um, entrepreneurial organization EO, which I think has like 15,000 members. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Something mm -hmm. like that. Uh, but he, so um, we'll interview him sometime. How did you get connected to Vern and, and how did he get incorporated in a geoversity? Because to me, I've only known him in this world. I didn't know him in a geo world. Right. Well, so he, he's an interesting person that reads voraciously. So he just, he reads everything and he really is always, he just found biomimicry. Um, and he was like, what's that? I need to know more about that. So then he brought me in as a speaker um, for that. But actually, he was already the chair of Geoversity because they had um, James Cameron came in and they were doing their avatar video game. Um, and it's all uh, all the artworks done in Mamani in Geoversity. Um, so that's all. Yeah. And and then James Cameron, Vern's like, you got to read this book by Tamsin. Um, so James Cameron read that book on the spot there and was like, this is what we're doing, man. We got the mycelial in there. This is what we're doing. So, um, the, I think that Vern kind of took on the chair because he was so inspired by that, um, and saw that, that potential. And then he's just deepened into it. And now he's like, he's my biggest fan. That's what he says. He's just amazing. Yeah. He's great. Um, and he, he really just the fact that we have a business person of that uh, magnitude behind us is to me really exciting because this is not a tree hugging effort. This is not a philanthropy. This is something that we're doing because we are trying to create regenerative value. Um, and that may look different than it does now. You know, what value means could change. It's inspirational. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So wait, does that mean you inspired the Avatar video game? That's what Vern says. I mean, it sounds like it. <laughs> he makes me feel so good. I'm like, did I do that? All right. Okay. That's pretty, that's, yeah, that's a yeah. bucket list for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, we have a really amazing team. Um, Geoversity was started by um, Wavy Gravy uh, and the um, Grateful Dead. In like way back time, I say it's 30, 30 years. Um, we're celebrating our 20th anniversary in um, Panama and the 30th anniversary of uh, university. You are probably going to see one or both of us there with bells on our toes at oh, university. And get this, Jane Goodall's been there five times and she loves us. Yeah. Of course she and does. And we know Jane has a special place in your heart. She does. She's the one that set me on this journey. I was five and I read her In the Shadow of Man. I'm like, I am going to do that. And I kind of did. You so did. What's so cool is that now, um, you know, now she knows about teaming and now she, you know, it's inspiring to her to bring up the next generation. 
So, um, and actually she said she's going to help me launch the next book, which is like a dream come true for me. Like it's beyond, right? That is, that's so exciting. Congratulations on all of the wonderful things. Yeah. Everyone hang in there. (laughs) Knock on wood. Um, Thank you so much for for sharing all of this knowledge. Thank you so much for everything that you put out into the world. It's, it's inspiring me. I feel really good and energized and stoked to be on this path with you and for taking this time to give back and create regenerative value for us. Um, it's the end of our time together. How about you leave us with your three point landing? Okay. I'm going to say the three point landing is it's a complex and volatile world but living things have adapted to that world for 3.8 billion years. So we have the answers in our bones and we just need to align our systems, um, structures and processes with our living nature. And that is really, you know, observing living patterns, learning to think in living systems and learning to design that way. Um, And I think if we do that, we can regenerate value and we'll all be fabulous. Well, thank you again. Thank yes. you. Yes. We'll, we'll see you. Um, we'll read your next book. We'll see you out and about in Ocean Beach. Okay. Yes. Oh, and right now we have a pre-order special. Oh, good. New book, cool. The Teaming Transformation. So um, I'll send you the link for that later. But yeah, right now we're doing the pre-order. So let's go. Get your Teaming Transformation book. We'll get Teaming and get Teaming Transformation on pre-order. Maybe. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. All right. Send it, Jessa. Thanks for listening. And visit astellar.co. That's A-S-T-E-L-L-A-R dot C-O for reference materials from the podcast and to connect with Jessa and Laurel. Foxhole Studios specializes in audio production and can work remotely to meet your audiovisual needs whether you live in San Diego or not. Getting a podcast started? Contact the team at info at foxholestudios.com for any and all inquiries.